Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, so glad you're with us for the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We even have a good martini again today. We're also brought to you today by Ladder Life Insurance. And Jim, before we get to the good martini, I need to note selfishly that today, 35 years ago, the Chicago Bears dominated the New England Patriots 46 to 10 in Super Bowl 20. 35 years ago. The Bears Super Bowl win is now eligible to run for president. Jim, it's nice to look back, but it'd be really nice if we had another one since then. But uh, I know you feel my pain because the Jets have, it's been a while too. Yeah, it must have really stunk for that, you know, have lost the Super Bowl in the interim. That's, uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that's a bummer. Those conference championships just aren't nearly as satisfying. You know, I- interesting you mentioned that, Greg, because I think if you're of a certain age, not just the sweetness of Walter Payton, not just the uh, just absolutely off the charts loaded defense. William the Refrigerator Perry, back when you know a, a football player weighing three hundred pounds was considered a lot. Yes, um, absolutely amazing, and and you know uh, just an exceptional team. I remember like rooting for the Jets, but just marveling at that team. I actually got to see them play the Jets late in this late in that season. Um, and I think they beat them like, you know, like 17 to six or something like that. It was a frozen game. But uh, I, I, since I have you on the spot and this is exactly how you expected <laughs> to start this podcast, Greg, does it ever sting that the 85 Bears, by universal acclaim, one of the best teams uh, in NFL history, certainly the most dominating defense, you know, with few rivals, that uh, that they only had one championship that they could have or should have? I think they made the playoffs a few times in that stretch, but, you know, that. That really was about as loaded a team as you're going to find in terms of talent. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It stings. Yeah. They won the division from 84 to 88, and uh, they only made it to the championship game two other times. Once the year before, got smoked by the Niners, who were 15-1 and one that year. And then they got smoked at home by the Niners in 1988 when the Niners uh, beat the Bengals in the last minute at the Super Bowl. Yeah, it's a team that had uh, a tremendous amount of talent, should have won. Uh, another Super Bowl should have at least gotten back to another Super Bowl. Uh, the defense was dominant the next year, statistically in many categories, even better than in 1985. Jim McMahon got hurt. That happened a lot with Jim McMahon, unfortunately. And so we were stuck with, uh, I believe, a, a combination of Steve Fuller and Doug Flutie. And since it wasn't the Canadian Football League, that didn't turn out too well. Uh, and we lost to the Redskins in back-to-back divisional playoffs in 86 and 87. Uh, 88, we got back there only because we beat the Eagles in the Fog Bowl in the divisional round. I know folks are tuning in to hear all about this. And the 86 Giants are obviously very good. Who knows if we would have beaten them? But uh, yes, opportunities missed, to be sure. And if everyone was wondering, you know, why did Greg go off on that rant? It's because I just picked at that scab. <laughs> and, uh, it's an open wound right there. He didn't even ask about Perry getting the touchdown in the Super Bowl instead of Peyton. That's a whole other uh, rant I've got stored up. But uh, anyway, let's get on to our actual business today. Our good martini, Jim, is that hopefully the craziness in the U.S. Congress over the next two years with Democrats running the show uh, will be limited now that uh, effectively there will be no change to the Senate filibuster over at least the next two years. It's 50-50 in the Senate with the vice president. The Democrats technically control the chamber. And even though it's technical, It matters a lot because Chuck Schumer will set the agenda. Democrats will chair the committees and so forth. It makes a world of difference. Uh, So the legislative filibuster is really the last filibuster left. And uh, the Democrats on the far left and even 
in what's considered the mainstream now. We're pushing for the Democrats to do that. Joe Manchin said even before the Georgia runoffs, no way, no how, I'm not doing that. Kirsten Cinema said the same thing, only more quietly. But yesterday, uh, they got back to Cinema again, and it could not be more clear. Her press secretary says Kirsten is against eliminating the filibuster, and she is not open to changing her mind about eliminating the filibuster. So right now you've got, I assume, with all Republicans on board too, 52 votes against that. Uh, So even if one waffles, the other one's still there. So Jim, there's still going to be a lot of terrible legislation brought up in the Senate because the Democrats are running the show. And even though they're going to try reconciliation on a lot of things, which would only need a simple majority, uh, some really horrible things will hopefully get kicked to the curb because of this. Yeah, I think I, we can look at this as probably the best deal that Mitch McConnell could have gotten in these circumstances. It would have been terrific to have this written in a letter or in, in some sort of documentation that, no, we're not going to eliminate the filibuster. The odds of Schumer doing that were never great. I don't think that time was necessarily on McConnell's side. Sure, the longer you delay, the more you put off the enactment of Biden administration agenda items. But Biden is going through with his unity and we're going to work together and we want to work with Republicans and all that kind of stuff. And McConnell could only afford to look obstructionist or, or stubborn for so long. By having Manchin and Cinema on the record really explicitly fresh in this circumstance to say, no, we're not eliminating the filibuster, makes it much tougher for either one of those to backtrack. And the other kind of aspect to keep in mind here is that, you know, if the Democrats had a solid Senate majority instead of the 50-50. One, they could, they could spare to lose Manchin and Cinema, but secondly, they'd also be in a circumstance where they could say, hey, look, we've got the American people have spoken. We have a solid majority. It's time for this obstructionist minority to stop using the filibuster that we use to stop Tim Scott's police reform bill. Because, you know, it's it's the Jim Crow filibuster when Republicans use it. When Democrats use it, it's fine. It's nothing, nothing out of the ordinary. But here's the thing, in a 50-50 Senate, we don't know, we talked a bit about Rob Portman retiring yesterday and it was a bad sign, but we just don't know who's going to have control of the Senate after 2022. Could be a bad year for Republicans, could be a good year for Republicans. Judging based on history, the president's party usually does pretty badly in the midterm. So all of a sudden, if you eliminate the filibuster now, when the Senate is 50-50, and all of a sudden Mitch McConnell has 51 Republicans or 52 or 53 or however many after the 2020 midterms, all of a sudden... Chuck Schumer just agreed to neuter himself. He just managed to get rid of the filibuster right before his uh, party ends up in the minority. And, oh, by the way, eliminating the filibuster really goes against, you know, Joe Biden's kumbaya approach. So, um, you know, look, the only way the filibuster goes away is if cinema and mansion flip. And that would probably cause either either one of them a considerable amount of... uh, headaches back home. They really can't paint themselves as a different kind of Democrat or a centrist kind of Democrat if they go along with something like this. So all things considered, this is probably about as good a deal as we could reasonably hope for. Uh, And it does keep uh, certain priorities for the minority party that the Republicans now are in the Senate. And so it's 50-50. They're apparently going to follow the precedent set after the 2000 elections when it was also 50-50, which I assume means equal membership on committees and so forth. A tie vote probably will send things to the floor. That 50-50 lasted a few months until Jim Jeffords switched to an independent and caucus with the Democrats back then. Uh, Jim, one of the interesting wrinkles here, and I got a couple follow-ups. One is that until the new rules were agreed to, 
everybody was operating under the old rules. So even though the Democrats had the majority, they were still operating under the rules of the previous Senate, which means Republicans still chaired the committees. And I was just curious to see how long Mitch McConnell was going to try and leave that in place. Uh, I mean, it's only been a few weeks, but, uh, you know, with cocaine Mitch, you never know. He could have strung that out till like the spring or something before he figured out that the Democrats had to take charge of the committees. Greg, you notice he always speaks very, very slowly, right? Yes. One way to drag out the negotiations is to take five minutes to finish each sentence. Mitch McConnell speaks, looks like he's going in slow motion, even when the tape is at regular speed. And speaking of uh, Mitch McConnell, got a lot of folks on the left, of course, who hate Mitch McConnell, and some are just making up stuff to convince Chuck Schumer that, no, you really do need to be able to kill the legislative filibuster. Hillary Rosen, longtime Democratic activist, uh, used to be ahead of the Recording Industry Association of America, I believe, said if McConnell was in charge, he'd kill the filibuster in a heartbeat and come up with some rationale that blamed Democrats for his duplicity. He doesn't play. Don't give up. Hashtag end the filibuster. And there's actually a comment on Twitter uh, that uh, directly contradicts that. You don't get that a lot uh, with any good citations on Twitter. Uh, comments from McConnell in 2011, 2012, 2017, and 2018, all of which he wants to keep the legislative filibuster. The last two, of course, being more important because Republicans controlled everything and killing the filibuster would have gotten more things through. But uh, Jim, uh, looks like he's been pretty consistent there and a lot of lefties don't know what they're talking about. Shocker. If McConnell was in charge... If McConnell, is this some like alien obscure scenario we need to imagine as, you know, you know, as we, as we observed, you know, because of the committee, you know, McConnell's been in charge and they didn't get rid of the filibuster. Donald Trump was calling for them to get rid of the filibuster. I think at one point, even uh, Charles Krauthammer was saying, look, this is reaching the point where you're just not going to be able to get anything through the Senate. You know, there, there have been a lot of pressure on Republicans to get rid of it, and they chose not to get rid of it because they decided, you know, they recognized if they were back in the minority, like they happened to have you know, happened after this election cycle, they would want to have that. Um, so it's kind of ridiculous. The only defense that I could imagine Hillary Rosen could come up with, Greg, is for her to say, well, I know at least three Mitch McConnells. <laughs> for those who may remember the Jay Carney, I know three Hillary Rosen's line, but. Ah, good times. All right. Well, let's talk about happier things like making sure that your family is uh, taken care of, doing the responsible thing. Because look, we know how fragile life is. We've seen it throughout this pandemic, but it's true at any time. You just don't know what's going to happen and when. So the smart thing to do is to make sure that your loved ones are taken care of. So it makes sense why people get life insurance, especially term coverage, which is surprisingly affordable. Why not pay a little bit each month to protect the ones you love? And if you're asking yourself this question, you want to choose Ladder Life Insurance. Ladder makes it impressively fast and easy to get covered. You just need a few minutes and a phone or laptop to apply. Ladder's smart algorithms work in real time, so you'll find out instantly if you're approved. There are no hidden fees and you can cancel any time. And since life insurance costs more as you age, now is the time to cross it off your list. Don't wait any longer. Lock in your best rate today and get your family covered with Ladder. Go to ladderlife.com slash martini. That's L-A-D-D-E-R life.com slash martini. Ladderlife.com slash martini. All right, Jim, we've talked about 2022 in a couple of different podcasts already this week, uh, looking especially at the Senate races, even though things usually go against the president's party. Most of the competitive races are in states where the Republican currently holds the seats, some of which are retiring, like Pat Toomey, Rob Portman, Richard Burr, and so forth. Other tough races... Um, 
in places like Wisconsin. We don't know what Ron Johnson's going to do. Marco Rubio potentially down in Florida. Uh, but there's another wrinkle here, and it's something that we've heard about uh, for almost about a week now, and that's that uh, Donald Trump might be in the process of building what's known as the Patriot Party, a totally separate party from the GOP, which could be a disaster. And now we have polling uh, that bears that out. This is polling done for just the news. That's uh, uh, John Solomon's outfit uh, through Rasmussen Research. Or, I'm sorry, through Scott Rasmussen, not Rasmussen Research. They're not affiliated anymore. But a hypothetical Patriot Party led by former President Donald Trump would win the support of almost a quarter, 23% of the electorate, bumping the GOP down to third place with just 17%. The startling survey result comes amid reports that Senate Republican support for convicting Trump in an impeachment trial is fast eroding. A Trump third party could provoke a pivotal realignment in American politics with the support of 46% of registered voters in the new poll. Democrats, of course, would reap the benefits of a fractured opposition and entrench themselves as as the nation's dominant party, even without majority support. So, Jim... Uh, We don't know how serious this effort will be to form the Patriot Party, if it will be formal, if it will morph into something that decides to challenge uh, incumbents and so forth within the GOP, which is more of what we saw during the Tea Party movement and so forth and would be obviously a much better (laughs) approach to hammering out these differences. But a uh, fairly competitive third party essentially taking votes entirely away from the right or splitting the right is only going to make things good for the Democrats. And that means bad things for just about everybody. One of the less remembered and probably more uh, more significant than recognized at the time developments in the political career of Donald Trump came from late 1999 to early 2000, when he was flirting about uh, the possibility of trying to be the re- presidential nominee of the Reform Party. The Reform Party had been founded by H. Ross Perot in the 1992 campaign cycle, continued in 96. Perot got, uh, what was it, 19% in 92, and then about 9% into uh, 96. And, you know, Trump took a look at this. I don't think Trump is a dramatically different person in 2016 than he was in 2000. Same way, I felt the same way on trade issues and the economy and other countries are taking us to the cleaners and stuff like that. But he looked at it and after a few months decided not to. And one of the reasons he, I think he you know, sharply observed was that you run on the Reform Party ticket, the 19% that H. Ross Perot got in 1992 is probably your ceiling. Maybe not, but you got to qualify for the ballots in all the states. You got to go out and get signatures. You got to you know, finance everything. You, you know, the, the entire media apparatus is designed to cover two parties, and the Libertarian Party and the Green Party can tell you how easily you get shunted aside and ignored. You know, if you want to influence what happens in American politics, you generally have to use one of the two major parties as a vehicle for that. I remember back when I was living overseas, I see a lot of questions about why, you know, people who had come from multi party parliamentary democracies asking, well, why does the U.S. only have two parties? And I would point out that they don't, they have more than two. You just very rarely see libertarians, greens, and other folks get elected. And the reason is after Ross Perot, you know, gained 19%, Republicans started echoing some of the Ross Perot arguments. What, ha- you know, um, what happens is the two major parties, they, they can read a poll as much as anybody else. They can study election results as much as anybody else. If there is some faction of the country that feels like the two major parties aren't expressing, they will gradually then start trying to make sales pitches to those groups. Sometimes they're successful, sometimes they're not. But if you're a Trumpite, your best bet to get Trumpite policies, whether it's you know uh, on trade, whether it's on the economy, whether it's on uh, withdrawing from military conflicts around the world, 
Um, you know, if you want to influence policy, your best bet is to do it within the, you know, the Republican Party. Otherwise, you got to start from scratch again and do this, you know, from, uh, and, you know, the question, the next question would be, what would the Patriot Party, you know, are they going to run for candidates for city council and town council? Are they going to run for uh, Senate seats, governor seats, state legislative seats? I mean, it takes time to go out and find all these candidates. So the, the, to, to me, if you want to look at the, the influence of the Tea Party is a much more useful example of how you can uh, be an, an outsider. You can be different from the party orthodoxy, step in and bit by bit gradually take over the influence. And it sounds like uh, particularly when you look at some of the reactions of these state party chairmen in the last couple of days and their statements on impeachment, Trump still has a great deal of influence in the Republican Party. So as much as he might be frustrated by what you know Mitt Romney's doing or um, any other particular figure, he thinks Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy didn't fight for him enough or something like that, taking your bat and ball and going home and forming a third party not only hurts the Republican Party, it also means it's extremely long road ahead for any, you know, Patriot Party, MAGA Party, or whatever you want to call it there. Uh, I mean, I suppose if Trump just has this vindictive, destructive streak that he just wants to punish people for not being loyal enough to him and he wants to see Democrats get, you know, in even greater control over the government. I mean, that that doesn't sound like him, right, Greg? <laughs> I just want to see this stuff play out in the primaries. I mean, you can uh, see it already happening here with the Senate trial that's about to come. Uh, any Republican that votes to convict is obviously going to get a primary challenge if they run again. Uh, and those who vote to acquit will probably get uh, a primary challenge based on that. So uh, it is a fractured party right now. Let's hash these things out. Uh, is it salvageable? Well, I hope so, because otherwise the Democrats are going to run roughshod and they're only going to get crazier as time goes on. Uh, and so the more fractured things get into separate parties, uh, there's nothing good that's going to happen for conservatives out of that. If you have the the family fight uh in public, it'll be ugly. But if you keep it within the family, uh, at least you can hopefully get to some resolution. I'm not saying it's going to happen anytime soon. I think this fight is a long time coming and I don't know how it's going to shake out. But uh, splitting up into different groups is only going to help the Democrats. What's the, the Ben Franklin line? Either we all hang together or else we're all going to hang separately. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Then uh, it won't matter if Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema are opposed to <laughs> nuking the filibuster, because uh, if Republicans and the Patriot Party split 50% of the vote, well, you're going to have a lot more Democrats in the Senate. So careful. Be very careful. Big tech is censoring conservative speech and Democrats will be controlling the White House and Congress. Hi, I'm Sarah Carter. Join me on The Sarah Carter Show and we will dig deep into the big issues together. Look, as an investigative reporter, I'll ask the questions no one else is asking. Share personal stories covering wars, the border and the D.C. swamp and bring on guests who know what's really going on. Subscribe to The Sarah Carter Show at Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Speaking of crazy Democrats, let's go over to our crazy martini for the day. And Jim, this is a little bit of a, a rerun from a couple of weeks ago, but now with an update. Uh, it was about a week before inauguration that uh, Ben Shapiro of The Daily Wire and his podcast, and yeah, most people on the right know who Ben Shapiro is, uh, was the guest author of the playbook uh, for Politico as they uh, work to put their new authorship team together. Uh, and the Politico staff basically had a giant hissy fit. There were over 200 uh, plus people on the Zoom call fuming at management for allowing Ben Shapiro that platform. Uh, the management, to their credit, that was a good martini one day, uh, said, no, we're not going to grovel and apologize or or say that this was a terrible mistake. Uh, we 
want a divergence of opinions. Well, the staff is still in revolt, Jim. The Daily Beast reporting, quote, more than 100 Politico staffers signed on to a letter sent to publisher Robert Albritton expressing disgust with allowing right-wing firebrand Ben Shapiro to guest author one day's edition of The Playbook and with the outlet's subsequent handling of the fallout. So... Uh, They're going above the editors, which I'm sure will only foster good relations uh, between editors and writers at Politico. So uh, they just can't let it go because they didn't grovel and cave like the New York Times editorial board. Uh, This is going to just linger. But hopefully uh, the initial reaction of the editors is also the reaction of the publisher. Yeah, I mean, you know, I have no Robert Albatron can handle this however he likes, but my not so quiet hope is that he would say, well, guys, if you really don't like it, there's the door. You can resign and go work somewhere else, or you can accept the fact that that was a decision that was made above your pay grade and above your head. Your objection is heard and noted and ignored, you know, (laughs) or alternately we heard you and we're not going to have Ben Shapiro do it again. But look, this is a fairly transparent effort to close the Overton window, as you used to say. I think it was uh, Glenn Beck who, who popularized this term. The Overton window is basically the acceptable range, what is considered a uh, normal, non-crazy idea in American politics. And everybody's constantly trying to push it in one direction or the other. If you're conservative, you want ideas that were once considered crazy right-wing to be a little more uh, reasonable, or at least you want it to not move in the leftist direction, in which, you know, Bernie Sanders yelling, let's nationalize the banks, let's do socialism, which might have gotten you laughed out of politics, say, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, now is considered, oh, it's a totally normal thing to say. That's a real, that's a realistic option that we should be looking at right now. I don't love everything Ben Shapiro's ever said. Um, I agree with a lot of what he says, but you know, I'm sure Ben Shapiro has made more than his share of uh, controversial statements. Anybody who works in in radio, well, except for you, Greg, uh, <laughs> is likely to say these. <laughs> you know, like like the, there's you could make an argument. I think with, for last time we discussed this, you could argue that that Ben Shapiro is kind of an unusual choice to be the give kind of this introductory essay in the playbook newsletter, which I observed was kind of a inside baseball sort of thing. And if, if that was the complaint, if the complaint was, hey, this this doesn't really fit our brand, this doesn't really fit what we usually offer readers. Um, it's it's when you have, you know, it's like, I'm trying to think of a good comparison, but um, if you had Sam Kinison guest host for Jay Leno, you know, the audience <laughs> would be like, whoa, whoa, that's not what I expected. That's that's some strong stuff there that, uh, uh, that we were not expecting. You know, that's you know, I, you can understand that response, but that doesn't require you to, for a hundred staffers to sign onto a letter weeks later, saying how angry they are and how he's insane and all that kind of stuff. Clearly, this is an effort to make sure that Politico uh, Playbook newsletter never picks anybody even remotely right of center, or if there is somebody who's acceptably right of center, say so. If Ben Shapiro's to to too much of a firebrand of a conservative to do that. Say so. No, I'm not volunteering for this because as <laughs> listeners no doubt know, I already write a morning newsletter and I <clears throat> think it's kind of a better one. But you know, nobody complained about Chris Hayes being the guest writer. Nobody complained about Chuck Todd. Ken Burns did it for a day. This is an effort to basically say anybody right of center is unacceptable. Uh, you know, but the other thing which was kind of revealing is I think on that conference call, I think it was Eric Wimple uh, uh, transcribed the comment where somebody said, we don't want not something like they basically put Ben Shapiro and Alex Jones in the same category. 
And look, on his absolute worst day, Ben Shapiro doesn't come within a country mile of Alex Jones. And if there are people who work for Politico and cover politics who cannot distinguish between Ben Shapiro and Alex Jones, they should not be writing about politics. That's, that's like having faulty vision and saying, I'm an art critic. You know, if you can't see what you're actually writing about, then you shouldn't be writing about it. So no offense to the people who can't see very well. It's kind of like being the general manager for the Bears and thinking Trubisky and Mahomes, hey, what's the difference? <laughs> um, Notice, listeners, Greg is still stewing about this. But, yes. but uh, it kind of reminds me, this uh, ongoing objection reminds me of the uh, trial in A Few Good Men, where Tom Cruise, as the lead attorney, objects to the doctor's testimony and it's overruled. And then the testimony keeps going bad for the defense. And Demi Moore stands up and goes, no, 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 we strenuously object. Yeah, well, it's still overruled. Sit back down. <laughs> like a double double whammy strenuous you know i pulled a muscle that's how much i i strenuously object oh jim thanks for the bears therapy 35 years later and uh anyway see you tomorrow see you tomorrow greg jim garrity national review i'm greg Columbus of radio america really appreciate you being with us today don't forget about our friends over at ladder ladderlife.com slash martini also please subscribe to the three martini lunch podcast we are very grateful for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews also get us on those home devices all you have to say is play three martini lunch podcast find us on twitter he's at jim garrity i'm at dateline underscore dc and please join us wednesday for the next three martini lunch